The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, when was the last time that you cried? <sighs> well, that's a very personal question because I don't cry very often, but I, <laughs> I, I don't either. I don't but either. I wept uncontrollably, actually, watching the series Little Bird by Jennifer Podemski. If you're watching YouTube, that's the J up there. She's coming up. It's on Crave, her whole series. Uh, you can see it now. It's the, it's the very first original drama series that's been done by Crave. And it's the first, more importantly, it's the first real series about the 60s scoop, which is basically Indigenous kids taken from their families, not just in the 60s, but in the 70s and 80s. And uh, anyway, thousands of kids taken from Indigenous families, given to adopting families. And I cried, and not just because I'm a big suck, but also... But that too. That too. Um, (laughs) But I'm a mom. And in this tale, not only is there like a massive wrong, there are two moms (laughs) and two families torn torn apart. So it's it's quite compelling. There's a lot to cry about. It's a really moving story. It's beautifully told. It's not a documentary, although it could be. It's a dramatization. Um, I'm four episodes in, and John and I have been watching it religiously. And he, you know what? He cries. He cries at the drop of a hat, and I love that about him. And I try not to drop hats because it gets messy. <laughs> but to my shame, I did not know anything about the '60s scoop. I knew about residential schools, but I never really. Like so many people, I never really thought, how did those kids get there? How, what happened? How were they taken? And, uh, and Little Bird addresses that. Yeah, it's quite something that it's, I mean, it's, it's a great tale, not just that people need to learn what happened, but it's also, it's an amazing story. But it, it made me think of that, the, the podcast, the interview, the chat that we had with Cindy Blackstock. So she's an activist. She's fought a lot for Indigenous kids. And she said that she was always shocked by how many Canadians thought that when she was growing up, she thought so many Canadians think they're great, that they're doing the right thing, but they actually don't know squat. Uh, The road to hell is paved with good intentions because, you know, at best, the white people at the time were thinking that they were saving these Indigenous kids. Yeah, well, I'm sure Jennifer Podemski, who's going to be on our podcast, she's got a lot of thoughts on that. She's the executive producer of Little Bird. She's half Jewish, half Indigenous, and which is sort of <laughs> belongs with the story. You might know her as an actor. She was, uh, she was in Dance Me Outside. That was her first big break. She's appeared on Degrassi. She made the movie uh, Empire of Dirt, which was nominated for a bazillion awards, uh, won a couple, but she became a producer mostly because she wanted to tell Indigenous stories and she thought that Indigenous people should be telling those stories. What a crazy idea. Uh, Actually, (laughs) almost the entire production crew behind Little Bird is made up of, well, mostly women, and many of them are of mixed heritage themselves. But the story, I think, is it will anyone can relate to it. I, I have a friend who recently met her. Uh, she was adopted. She met her family. Mixed results about that. Be careful what you wish for. But uh, yeah, it's little. What we're trying to tell you is, is watch Little Bird and and then join us for this conversation. So Jennifer Podemski uh, is going to join us now, I hope. We had a couple technical issues, but there you are. Hi, Jennifer. There you are. Actor, producer. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's wonderful to see you. Wonderful. Right. Wonderful. And we're not we're not just blowing sunshine. We're both just so moved by this, 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 this amazing, I was going to say wonderful story, but it's heartbreaking. Uh, and I think you're getting universally the same reaction that people are like, wow. 
Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm so glad it's over. First of all, it was a very long <laughs> journey. I'm recovering from telling that story. So it's good to be talking about it in retrospect. And of course, with such a a great group of people on a great podcast. So I'm excited to tell you all the things you want to know about how that was. Okay. Well, where to start? It must have been so, so painful to tell that story because I didn't, re- I, like it's, as I was saying to Maureen, it's, it's, you know, it's a great story for people to learn about, but it's also just an amazing story and why it was never told. I, I don't know. Like, and it is something that I think that everyone can relate to because, you know, like one of the most, it sounds so stupid in comparison, but I was so torn when I took Kate, who was five, who was the age of the little girl in the, in the story, who was basically torn from her parents everybody screaming. I was screaming when I took Kate to kindergarten and the kindergarten teacher stole her out of my arms. And she was, I, it was so <laughs> but traumatic. you got her back. It's so stupid. <laughs> I got her back like an hour later, like in your story or in many of the stories of the 60 scoop that the kids never see their parents again. The moms, the dads never see their kids again. It's just. Jen, let's go back to why this happened. Like I said, we know about the residential schools, but what was the thinking behind removing all these children from their families? Basically, in short, what what happened was residential schools had a, you know, a hundred year legacy. And by the 60s, 50s, 60s, the management of the removal of Indigenous kids from families transferred from the federal kind of pocket to the province, to the provinces. And that became a part of the chi- the greater child welfare system. And at that time, the motivation specifically in Saskatchewan, probably because of the very densely populated reserves and, you know, communities and cities of Indigenous people, uh, there was a program called Adopt an Indian Métis, which was a provincially funded program that was designed to kind of expedite the removal and either adoption and sometimes sale of Indigenous kids into the general public, ideally with non-Indigenous families, as a, you know, an effort to do the same thing that residential school was doing, which was to remove the Indian from the child and to absorb those children and absolve them of all their culture and identity and absorb them into the body politic of Canada. And oftentimes in Europe and in the the States, they went all over the world for that goal of essentially removing the Indian problem, which is, you know, what was originally stated in the Constitution, you know, when John A. Macdonald ended up signing it and saying, we have an Indian problem and this is how we're going to deal with it. So it sort of filtered, filtered through a bunch of different incarnations and the 60s scoop was kind of the the version that we saw during the 60s, 70s and 80s. And today we actually call it the millennial scoop because there are more children in care today, Indigenous children in care today than there were in all of residential school or the 60s scoop. That is stunning in the negative sense, that alone. I mean, are, have we not evolved? Have we not learned anything? Do we not have any respect that is really shocking. The kids were living on the family when they were all together in Saskatchewan were living on the reservation and they didn't have running water and they didn't have electricity. They were off grid. And that was the reasoning used 
by the powers that be to remove the kids that they were being brought up. No regard to family relationships, just like this is the reason you can't raise kids like this. But there, there, this is an ongoing problem. There's still reservations where they don't have clean water. They don't have electricity. And, you know, as a result, ongoing drug abuse and so on. From what you've been through, and you've been through a lot, how do we change course? Well, that is probably a question, you know, that I can't fully, we cannot leave this podcast today with an answer. Didn't think so. Sorry. Damn. You know, I think it's, it, it is really people like Cindy Blackstock, you were mentioning at the beginning, people who are really on the front lines of dismantling the kind of systemic and structural racism that does exist to create spaces where Indigenous people can create policies that are designed really to uh, rebuild community and address some of those issues that are a direct result of the removal of children and dismantling of families. And we do see results today that shows that the needle has moved in the, in the right direction in favor of Indigenous people and communities. But I think it's so minimal and a lot of work has to be done. I mean, for me, it's just storytelling. I, I think that we have a lot of reparations to, to take on and doing that through storytelling is, you know, really the only way I know how to do it. So... It was so fascinating because we've interviewed a couple of people, white people, uh, who grew up with, you know, no running water. <laughs> and they did fine. They, their kids were not taken away from them. So, you know, I think that there are, there are lots of reasons. And, and, and now you've finally, you've got Crave, you've done the series, you've got the, the Shine Network, which is a digital component for get, getting these stories out. And things are, things are changing. And I'm wondering... Like for you, just how different are things? Like you talk now about when you began, you were the only Indigenous person who was basically offered racist stereotype rules. Um, and you decided, no, we got to change this. And now you're calling people and everybody's busy. So, I mean, things are, things are changing. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely see the change. You know, I can see just within the community that I'm in, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of us working on our own stuff, which is great. But on the other side, I think there is still kind of a a dearth of Indigenous stories. And I kind of use the metric of like how Canadians respond to, let's say, missing and murdered Indigenous women as an epidemic, as a crisis, that there's really not a lot being said by Canadians. And I think that that is a direct result of the way the narrative has kind of cemented this idea that we are not, that that we are less than human, right? Over across time, I think that that narrative still exists. So it is changing and there is a little bit of, of more hope maybe than I had even last year. But there's a lot of work to do. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, changing that narrative. And that narrative is more of like a social, a social narrative where when things happen to people, most people stand up and pay attention and, you know, stand in solidarity with groups that are, that bad things are happening to, but that so rarely happens with indigenous people, because I think, you know, our absence in the education system, our absence in the political system is just an example of like 
us being invisible kind of by design. So there's, there's a lot of work to do, but to, to not be such a downer, I think that it's such a good, you know, it's such a good time. We are in such a good time for people to work together, you know, like creating partnerships that are, that are indigenous led to enhance, you know, visibility and equity and all of those things that feel so good when a society is able to do them properly. I think that today we we definitely feel like that we've we've had a big shakedown with, you know, since COVID and just things feel kind of I think everyone feels a little bit destabilized for one reason or another and this is a good time if we're going to restabilize to to do it in a more focused united way with where the people who have can support those who don't have and the people who who can offer space can you know offer that space to people who don't have any space you are half Jewish uh, and a half Ojibwe. That's the case with with your protagonist, with Esther or Beijing, as she's is her indigenous name. I was really interested in the scenes that took place in Montreal with Esther's Jewish family, the, her engagement party. And I mean, I grew up in Montreal. I was the only non-Jewish kid in a theater school, and I was the only non-French kid in a French school. So, you know, I, I know a little bit about not being neither fish nor fowl, right? Not quite fitting into both. I desperately wanted to be Jewish because all my Jewish friends had the best family life and would invite me back and the food was great and so on. So I grew up with that. But I was thinking, so what is what was your experience like? Did you feel comfortable in both worlds or is there one that that you feel is more you, for lack of a better way of asking? Well, first... I just want to clarify, Little Bird is not my story. So that is a completely fictionalized story. But you have the same background. Uh, yeah, I, but I am Jewish. Like my dad is Israeli Jewish. My grandfather is a Holocaust survivor. My my mother is from Muscopeding First Nation in Saskatchewan, whereas Esther is is fully indigenous from a community in Saskatchewan and raised in a Jewish family. So in terms of, you know, the identity the, com- the complexity of her identity, I did use so much of my own experience being stuck between those two worlds. However, you know, for me, it was always just not fitting into anywhere, mostly because of the way that I looked. I'm clearly not white or Jewish looking, and I'm not fully native looking. So I was just always sort of questioned about who I was and like, why do I look like this? And that kind of in childhood makes you feel not a part of things. <laughs> so without the the racism, most of the racism I experienced was really like as an Asian person. I was like, I definitely received a lot of anti-Asian kind of uh, racism growing up. I think because my mom was so far away from her family and we, we lived in a very Jewish area at in Toronto in North York and my dad's family was very consistently there you know we had shabbat dinner every friday night we we were with his family with my grandparents and my aunt all the time whereas my mom's family lived in Saskatchewan in British Columbia so until we moved out west we didn't really spend a lot of time with her family so she was very isolated and I know how difficult that was for her and how lonely that was for her. And so much of Esther is 
was inspired by my mother and uh, me witnessing her alienation growing up and also my own sense of conflict, inner conflict about, you know, where I belonged. So all of those things are, are really what, what I was able to bring to Esther's character. And then of course we had real lived experiences of 60 scoop survivors who helped us to build the PTSD and, you know, the, the story of being taken from your family and, and how that sort of plays out. Yeah. I, I think, you know, at 50, I can say, I don't feel like I'm half of anything. I'm just fully, fully who I am. And that is, you know, a long history of Anishinaabe people and a long mix of, you know, Cree and Métis and Lenape and, you know, however far it goes back on my mom's side. And then on my dad's side, you know, the Polish and Russian legacy that was completely on my grandfather's side gone except for one brother. So I have a bunch of family in Israel. So my family is all over and I feel very much, I feel very much connected to both of my histories that I come from. And it works for me as a storyteller. I think that that was probably why I'm here is to somehow become a bridge between divided communities and divided people. And, you know, in that way, I think storytelling is a very powerful connector of, of human beings and human experiences. The women of ill repute. I was really struck by that, by, by the end of, of the series, that there is so much love for for both families, even though her real family is the Indigenous family that she was stolen from. She was raised by a Jewish family. But there is a, a very telling moment in it when she says to her Jewish mother, um, but it was wrong. And, and the mother is saying, no, 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 we were saving you from a life of poverty. We we're saving you, which is what so many ignorant or white or well-meaning or however you want to, you know, name them, uh, people, people thought, but it was, but it was wrong. So is that changing now? Well, that's going back to what we were talking off the top again about the road of to hell being, <laughs> yeah, people still think that Aboriginal kids grew up in the worst possible circumstances. And that's not necessarily untrue, but it's also not necessarily true. Yeah. I think that, you know, there, there are um, extraordinary and disproportionate realities that Indigenous families are facing today. And a lot of it has to do with poverty. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, even if you're 20 minutes from Toronto on a, on a reserve, you may have no clean water, no access to clean water, which is something that every human being should have, you know, you would think that that should come to people so easily, but that is one thing I think that is indicative of how communities on reserve are being treated through policy. So there are those extraordinary circumstances, but I think what, what we were aiming to do was to show one very specific story because there are obviously tens of thousands of stories. Each one feels worse than the other. And it's hard, 
it's hard to it's hard to know which one was going to to work most effectively on television because some are just unbelievable like it's too unbelievable for television yeah well reading that there were ads that, and you said that some kids were even sold it's just i mean it's yeah we heard several stories of kids being sold as labor a lot in the states kids who were trafficked to the states and yeah the ads were part of that adopt an indian metis program so there were catalogs catalogs made um so you could pick one you yeah, could you, like say I'll have one of these and one of those, like they're eggs. Yeah. Wow. Nothing. Let's. I wanted to sidetrack wow. a little bit more back to you. So you and your sisters are all performers. are all actors. Yeah. Correct. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, sort of I go, love this yeah, story, and it is yeah, we're, yeah. we're talking <laughs> seriously about serious matters. But you have said that you wanted to be a clown. Um, yeah. And that they obviously like making people laugh or scaring them. <laughs> I don't know. Some people. Um, but t- tell us about your first experience when you went to New York and, you know, b- being who you are and looking like you do, which is, as we pointed out, or you pointed out, people were giving you a hard time for being looking Asian. What, uh, tell us what happened to you when you decided that you would present yourself to various casting uh, agents. Well, there was LA first, I think, right? And then you went to William Morris and Yeah, yeah. That was so that was kind of early in my twenties. Um, after I had done Dance Me Outside, I was living I guess with with someone who was working a lot in the industry and very successful. And she kind of inspired me to check out LA. So I went to stay with a friend there and, you know, went to William Morris for a for an interview and it was it was very weird. Like definitely, I think for every actor it's and woman for sure, you know, it's always like stand up, turn around, let me see your body. Let me see what you look like, take off your jacket, like that kind of stuff. But it's like, I don't really know what I would do with you. Like, I don't know what you, like, I can't tell what you are. Like a lot of people, especially casting directors at the time were like, you're just too, you're not really native enough to play native. So I would often lose my, those roles to non-native people who were. Looked more native. Yeah. Who looked more native and you're not really white. So I really have no idea what to do with you. So it was a lot of that kind of stuff. And that just kind of continued. Although I'm, I'm really lucky. I did get to do a lot of great. I did get to do a lot of great work. I did. Diviners with Sonia Smits and Tom Jackson, Conspiracy of Silence, Dance Me Outside, and then The Res and then Degrassi. So I definitely would consider myself incredibly blessed that I was able to do those things. And despite that, I, I, I just was never able to make a living as an actor because it was so few and far between. And then this whole idea of how I looked and the things I would have to compromise and the kind of work that was coming my way, it was constantly like dehumanizing characters that I just couldn't, I just couldn't handle. And, you know, sometimes I would do them because, because I was aware that if I didn't do it, it's possible that it would go to someone non-Indigenous. And then at least if it's me, I could be on set and like somehow educate people. And then I just felt like this is not really what I really wanted to be a clown. (laughs) I I wanted to be in the circus. Like, and that was actually bef- right before I moved to New York, I did a movie called Bogus and I got to train with the Cirque du Soleil. I got to train with Franco Dragone, the original like 
artistic director of Cirque. I got to be a clown and it was one of the best experiences of my life. And they invited me to do a shortlist audition for a clown in the Cirque du Soleil. And then I had a skiing accident and I couldn't walk for like a year. So it was like, oh, wow. And that's when sort of shortly after that, I moved to New York because my sister was in rent. So I went and stayed on her couch and thought, maybe I'll try New York and see how that goes. And that was not, that didn't really work out. (laughs) (laughs) You wish, don't forget. Like, what about, yeah. Yeah, I think there are people way more qualified, you know, to do that than I am. So are you going to do like a series, like a clown indigenous where you teach everybody about <laughs> Jewish? Yes. But if someone approached me with a clown series and, you know, begged <laughs> me to do it, I, I may not turn it down. So what do you do now? Like what, so you've done your series and we hope that everyone watches it because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's regardless of, of the meaning. It's, it is beautiful. Yeah. So, so now what? Now, what? Uh, like, I know you've got the Shine Network, which is the promoting Indigenous people to come out and tell stories digitally. But other than that, what do you do? Like, do you? I don't know if, if this is a secret pleasures uh, <laughs> question or what. I mostly work. You know, I have a slate of projects that I've been developing. You know, so I have projects that are kind of like in production. Some are corporate clients. Some are. You know, there's a lot going on that is is not like in production, let's say. So are you always working? Like, what do you do for inspiration or is it always working? Like, I, I've i been watching The Bear and I do not cook, but it's just the food is like so amazing. Is there something that you that you watch or, or is everything work related? Do you have an outlet or is it something? Yeah. I typically don't watch content for inspiration. My inspiration comes from people. And I think that for me, the most important thing in life is gathering with people. And I'm big on hosting. Like I love to host people and I love to bring people together. So any chance I get to do that, that's what I do. Do people go to Barry? Because don't, don't, <laughs> you live in Barry. Barry's beautiful, man. I drive through it twice a week. <laughs> I just like hosting. So that has become, that is really my, my inspiration. And I write a lot. And I guess, you know, the truth is my family is like, we are an indigenous family that faces a lot of those issues that you read in the newspaper. So that also inspires me as tragic and devastating as it can be, you know, having, people in your family that have gone missing or people in your family that are dealing with, um, you know, those disproportionate realities that we, we see in the news, those things inspire me to keep doing the work, whether it's through the shine network where we're, you know, training and advocating and creating opportunities and professional development resources. So putting tons of energy into that or creating content that, uplifts Indigenous stories or sheds light on Indigenous stories and experiences. Yeah, because your your whole series, The Little Bird, was uh, the consultant on it was Nakusat, who runs the Native uh, Native Women's Shelter in Montreal, which is kind of yeah. a big deal. My daughter's in Montreal and contributed to that and everything. And she tells the story about how 
she sees so many people from the equivalent or actually from the 60s scoop because they've ended up like screwed up because that's what happens when you're removed from your family and you feel some ways that kind of drives you you know it's it's the it it's sometimes inspiration comes from things that make you sad and you want to see over you want to see them stop happening well, I hope they all become clowns. We're going to wrap soon, but uh, but yeah, I, I would like to be a clown. I was going to run away and join the circus too, but it's too hard. Like, and too many people, like you, you, the bearded ladies thing is over, but uh, thank goodness. <laughs> but the- I just find it so ironic that you broke your leg when you were with hoping to be with Cirque du Soleil. I mean, you have to do more than walk to be in that, but you couldn't even do that. But it, you know what? It pointed you in probably a better direction. Yeah, it really did. It, it's one of those sliding doors kinds of things. And yeah, yeah. I was wondering, hmm. <laughs> well, life is long. Who knows what's next? And you live in Barrie. So do you still ski or is that over now too? Because you know. No, no, I'm, yeah. There are I, no ski hills in Barrie. I mean, I know they <laughs> Mount St. Louis, Horseshoe. Yes, the Montrealer, yes. Please. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, Jennifer, it's been lovely, lovely, lovely wonderful. to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, we will continue to sing the praises of the series because it's so good. And we look forward to whatever you do next. Thank you. Yeah. Good luck with everything. And um, let us know when the clown series comes because uh, that would be fun too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I will. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> you know, there was one thing I was going to bring up with, with Jen Podansky, but and I'm glad I didn't. But I'll bring it up with you was watching the show and I still have two more episodes to go. And I, like we said, really enjoying it. And, uh, but I felt this tremendous sense of guilt and shame because the white people, almost without exception, they weren't so much like villainous. They were just so stupid and so self-absorbed and so to a man or to a woman. And the reason why I didn't bring it up with Jen was like, you know what? I don't need you to to help me deal with my white lady guilt. You know, that's why I didn't want to talk to her about it. But did you not get that feeling? At one point I turned to John going, God, is there anybody there that realizes this is wrong? Well, I think, and this is maybe white lady guilt. And I think there's a lot of it. And I think it's good that we're, that she's done the series and that we're all a little bit more aware of the sexy scoop because of, of her work. But I was really struck by her saying, and maybe it's because it's been sort of in the back of my head, is that we're all just people. Like, they're just humans. Like, Indigenous people are just, they're just humans like everybody else. Like, yeah. Um, and, and so there have been hardships and they've been torn away from their family, but we're all just human and let everybody be treated as a freaking human being. Yeah. But, but yeah, I don't, like, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm, I wanted to ask, or I have been thinking about and wasn't sure I should ask the same thing about Jean Chrétien. He was prime minister and he had, it wasn't a, I don't think it was 60 scoop, but it was during the seventies and it was a family from the Northwest Territory. So it's the equivalent of the 60 scoop. He adopted an Inuit kid and that kid ended up screwed up and ended up in the, the penal system and whatever, 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 and had addiction issues. And Chrétien is quoted as saying, well, I didn't know it did anything bad. You know, I didn't know that there were all of these issues. 
Well, I wonder what the circumstances were too of where where that that boy came from. Yeah, he came from um, an orphanage. Was he taken? Was he torn? Or was he came from an orphanage or a residential school, or was he torn from his family the way that the the little girl in in, in Little Bird was done? Well, we don't know, and that and ignorance is is not acceptable. It just is. So, well, from one white lady to the other, so you know we're going to have to deal with the guilt. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, All right. Lovely to see you and lovely uh, to see yeah, you and to see Jen. And I'm so glad that it worked out. So wonderful. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Do, did, will. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.